Well, let's uh, begin with the word of prayer and ask God's uh, God to help us here as we uh, start into this new series. Father, we uh, pray that you would increase the resolve in our heart to know and to love you and to commit ourselves to you. We pray that we would uh, understand and recognize your ownership of us and as a result, our responsibility to follow you. May you uh, help us to see more clearly that, that we are yours and that we belong to you and that all that we do uh, is for your glory and, uh, and is by your grace. May we uh, not take the credit for it. May we not go against your plan, your desire. May we follow you uh, with wholehearted obedience, with hearts full of love, and we pray that you would help us in that endeavor, both individually and as a church. May we help one another to do the same. Help us this time and this time to reflect on your word and to think more clearly about uh, our responsibilities as parents and as church members to help other parents. We pray that you would give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting a uh, new series this week. And uh, as I often say when we start these, I, I love starting new things. Um, you know, it just gives a, a fresh perspective, a fresh um, start to start over. You have a lot of uh, thoughts and, and uh, ideas about what kind of things we can learn throughout this class. And, and I hope that, um, that, that those um, ideas will be fulfilled as we go through. Um, the story has been told of two young fish. They're swimming along, and they pass an older fish uh, who's swimming in the other direction. And he says, morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish kind of look at each other like, what water? You know, the, and the point of the story is that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and to describe and to talk about. Uh, George Orwell puts it this way. He says, To see what is in front of one's nose is a constant struggle. And of course, this anecdote and this uh, little proverb by Orwell both are derived actually from biblical truth because the book of Proverbs tells us that wisdom calls out in the heights. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Okay, um, That's in chapter 8 where it says that that wisdom calls out in the heights. But look at Proverbs chapter 2 because it's not quite that simple. There is a sense in which Proverbs, uh, which wisdom is out there and it's ready for us to receive and, and to accept. But there's another sense in which wisdom is hidden. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Um, well, let's start with verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding, for if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure. And then the result of that is when you do search for wisdom that way, verses 5 to the end of the chapter tell you that it will help you to understand the ways of the Lord and it will help you to avoid evil. And, uh, and so there is a sense in which wisdom is a hidden treasure and yet it's it's there in plain view it's out there ready for us to receive and that's the kind of 
uh, thing that parenting is. It is one of those things that is in plain view, and yet there's some hidden wisdom. There, there's some wisdom that is like a hidden treasure that we need to search out and understand. And uh, so that's what we're going to attempt to do in this class, is try to understand what it means to be a godly parent according to what the Scriptures say, of course. And, um, and uh, let me just give you my little commercial for the class, just in case you think, oh great, I, I can't believe I started into this class. I'm not a parent. I don't plan to be one, or I'm a long way away from that. Um, I, I'll just say what I said at the end of last class, and that is that you know, obviously those of us who have children, this is a very important class to have. Those of you who will have children, this is extremely important for you as well. Those of you who are grandparents, I would say this is important for you because you have a responsibility to help uh, your children raise up their children. But it's also important for every other person, I believe, to understand what it means to be a godly parent. And the reason for that is because you're going to find that there are some basic truths that will help you in your life, whether you have children or not. But also, it will help you to be able to help other people who do have children. Okay, when I was, uh, I I mentioned last week, you know, when we were going through the part about older women need to teach younger women how to love their own husbands, that doesn't have to be an older married woman. That could actually be an older single woman could teach a younger married woman how to love her husband. Now, how could she do that if, Let's say this older single woman was never married. Well, uh, really the authority that she has to, to help that younger married woman is not because of her experience. Okay, and I, and I gave the example when we were talking about this in Titus chapter 2 that you know, if, a, if a drug addict came to our church and said, I need you to help me, um, I hope you would understand that I wouldn't turn them away because I, I would say to them, you know, I've never done drugs. I've never, ha- I've never, you know, done anything like that. I don't know what it means to be an addict, so I can't help you. I hope that you understand that on the authority of the Scripture, I can help him, can I? And the same is true with, with any one of us in our relationships. We don't have to have experience in order to help someone. Um, obviously, experience is helpful. You, you recognize that. Um, if I've gone through that situation myself, if, if as a, you know, let's say I was saved out of, out of drugs and then uh, trained and became the pastor, well, then maybe I could help them better than if I weren't into that situation. But, but obviously you recognize that ultimately uh, help and growth, spiritual growth comes from wisdom and wisdom comes from the truth of God's Word. Okay, there's not a greater counselor, we would say, than Jesus Christ Himself, and yet He's never sinned at all. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet He was without sin. He had no children, okay? So, and yet we would still go to Him for counsel. And so that's what I would say to you who don't have children or are long way removed from children, that is, you've had them a long time ago, but you don't have any interaction with them anymore because maybe they've passed on or whatever. But, uh, Or if you never intend to have children, or you don't see yourself in that, I would say that you still have a responsibility to learn something like this in order to help other people within our church. And obviously when you, you, um, you know, let's say you become an expert after going through this class, it probably won't happen, but okay, because I'm not an expert, but uh, you become an expert on parenting even though you've never parented, and now you start to see some things in some other 
families' lives within our church, okay, um, the way that this kind of relationships works is is when you are doing this in a loving way. Okay, Ephesians 4 talks about speaking the truth in love. Okay, so it's done in what I would call mutual humility. That is, the speaker, the the helper is the one who's going to, um, okay, let's say, for example, me. I have children. You come to me and you say, I have noticed some things in the way that you're parenting and it doesn't seem to follow with what the Scriptures say. Okay, so the way that you come to me, whether you have children or not, is in a humble way. And, and the way that I'm supposed to respond is also in a humble way, right? That I am willing to be taught, even if it's not from someone you know, who, who has children. Alright, and so that's the idea. So I just want to kind of set up that groundwork. I want to see that, I want you all to see that there is value in this class, and uh, particularly, obviously, for you parents and grandparents. All right, well, this, this uh, idea of parenting in the godly way is, is uh, one of those hidden in plain view treasures that we need to search after. And to see this, I think we need to make a connection between marriage and parenting. Um, and and um, we can look to the world and we'd hear from some people that having children, uh, that having children uh, means for married people to find some sort of self-fulfillment. Okay, this is what... Uh, we could call having children as an idol that they, you know, they they are all of our lives. I mean, I think as we go through each of these categories, you can picture families and probably yourself, which which I did as well in these in some of these categories that you treat your children like idols. No one's allowed to touch them. No, they cannot be wrong. Okay, my their, their teacher came down on them for something. There's no way that my child could have done that. Um, Everything that we do in life is for our our children to the exclusion of God. Okay, That is, we exalt our children over God and we'd rather have them happy than God satisfied with how we're raising them and so on. Obviously, we could go on and on about that. Uh, how about children as a tool? Others would say that having children is important because families are the foundation of a civilized society and that they are the building block of the church. And so this views children as a tool that they're just a means to an end. That they, um, when you know, raised up in a proper way, they're going to lead to a healthy society, healthy church, and so on. We'll talk about what that means at the end of the class. So save your questions for that time. And then finally, um, children as an obstacle. <clears throat> Some would say that having children is not that important. In fact. Um, you know, it, it can be, they can become a barrier uh, to accomplishing some ambition in life. Okay, so I can't have children because they would keep me from getting what I really want in life, and that's seeing children as an obstacle. Um, obviously, there is uh, some value, especially to the second one, that children are a, a, a means to developing a healthy society and a healthy church. So we don't want to dismiss that completely. But uh, what we're trying to determine is what is God's purpose for the family? And uh, we're going to take two classes to look through this, but God's purpose for the family. So let's just try to see if, if we can put this in a simplified form. 
right, I'm not sure if I wrote this on your... Okay, let me just... Uh, let me just put it this way. Scripture teaches that a primary purpose of the family is nothing less than presenting the whole world with a series of three images. The the nature of the Godhead. Okay, we're going to talk about that. The nature of the gospel and the nature of the church. Okay, so that really family is not the ultimate reality. Family is only a picture of the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is God in Three persons. Okay, and we're going to see that, that that's a familial type of relationship that we're trying to picture, but also it pictures the um, what the gospel is about and what the church is about. So we're just going to look at that first one this week. Where do we find the, the connection between marriage and having children in the Bible? Well, you may, right, in Genesis chapter 1, he creates... God creates Eve, a suitable helper for Adam, and the first thing He tells them is what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, so this is a pre-fall command that is given to them that they're expected to obey. And that's not the only time that God gives that command, is it? Do you remember another time when God gives that exact same command later on after the fall? Do you remember... Noah, right on the other side of the the flood. God says to Noah, you're responsible to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Increase upon it. So, um, so for those of us who are not blessed with the gift of, of singleness like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 or who are unable to have children, the Scriptures the scriptures um, do not make families optional. Okay, so if you are married, families, that is, having children, is not in the scriptures optional, but rather they are commanded from the very beginning that it seems to be the pattern. Now, why is God so insistent about this? Why is it so important to have children? And the answer is found when we consider why He created Adam and Eve, right? He created them in His image, Genesis 1, 26-27. And he wants those image bearers to be multiplied all over the earth. Think about it this way. Could not God have simply made multiple creations, unilateral creations? That is, he was the sole giver of life in all of those situations that throughout all of history. So he could go from the dust of the ground, make Adam, and then make Eve out of his rib, and then make another person like, you know, Cain and Abel and Seth and so on. He makes them all individually out of the dust of the ground. Could God not have done that if He wanted to? But instead, He calls for His two original uh, you know, uh, human creations and calls them to, to continue this life, to, to continue on this reproduction process. Bruce Ware writes, he's a theologian, um, and he says, it is as if God said, I created the first and original pair of human beings in my very image. And I could cre- continue creating them unilaterally so that, it would have no, that you would have no part to play. But instead, you, Adam and Eve, are now to bring about human beings. You are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the greatest of all creations, humans made in my very image. 
So God is commanding them to to procreate, to continue on with this image, uh, this image of God throughout uh, society. He wants it to to spread and grow. But God was not finished. He also gave the um, multiplying family some some major significance in the history of redemption. We see this most significantly, obviously, in Abraham when um, he said, through you, Abraham, all the, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we also see it um, in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Paul's talking about how husbands and wives ought to resemble the relationship between Christ and the church. So we'll talk about more, more about how the family resembles and is really just a picture of the church here in the next class. But we're going to focus... On, um, on this one to start with for today. Before we do that, though, let me just talk about sin um, because obviously we, we look at this, um, this fallen world from the time that Adam and Eve sinned and we have to say that, you know, we, we, how do we reflect these pictures, right? I mean, if, if our families are supposed to be a picture of the Godhead and a picture of the Gospel and a picture of the church, uh, we are we are far away from reflecting those types of things, aren't we, in our families? And um, obviously there are there there is sin within us, and and uh, Satan's trying to mar that picture of the family. And so we may come away with the thought, you know, my my family might be a picture of something, but it's not a picture of those three things. That's for sure. And you know what? That's kind of the point, because. Um, the very fact that we know that something is wrong with our family that is not picturing properly those three things that it's supposed to picture, that tells us something. That tells us that we're not where we should be. And when we look at other families and we see these families as operating more of a picture of those three things than we are, then it also tells us something. It says, see, they're, they're closer to that picture than we are, and that's a helpful thing. It's, um, you know, when we look at the negative things, aspects in our own family and how we don't picture those three things properly and how some other families potentially do, you can think of it like a photo negative. Okay, uh, obviously, some of you in here are too young to understand what that is, surprisingly, but uh, a photo negative is... Um, it, it's the uh, the negative of the picture, so it's not the picture itself. It's actually the reverse of the picture. And so, in the photo negative, you can actually see God's image. That's the idea with your the the negative image of your family, not perfectly picturing God, the Godhead, not perfectly picturing the church and the gospel, but it but it gives you the outline of what it ought to look like. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says we naturally form a positive vision of the family by contrast. We understand what it's supposed to look like because this is what it looks like in the Godhead. This is what it looks like in the Gospel. This is what it looks like in the church. And so we see we're not there yet, but that helps us see more clearly those three things that God, what it looks like in the Godhead and so on. And so we don't have to become discouraged. You know, we're not perfect and we can't, display this perfectly, God has uh, a perfect plan for why He has set it up this way. But I hope you recognize that families 
are um, the at least the the organic families that we have now are only temporary and only a picture of what we ultimately uh, see in the Godhead and with our relationship with God. Now that will hopefully become more clear as we break these down. But um, but the family is not the final ultimate reality. It's not the final goal. It's only a step towards towards viewing God. All right. Any uh, thoughts so far? Any questions? All right. First, the family is central to the portrait of God Himself. That, um, let me just uh, throw this out here for you. I have these surprise points that come up every now and then. Our bad experience combined with our view of the good in other homes helps paint the picture of God's design. Okay, we, This is J.I. Packer down here. We form a vision of the family by contrast. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We want to look at this first one. This will be the, our task for today is to see how the family pictures uh, the nature of the triune God Himself. Um, the, I mentioned that the family is only a picture and that the ultimate reality is the Godhead. And so what, what we should see in, in, in looking at these verses is that the relationship between our Heavenly Father and God the Son is the ultimate reality. And so that all of the relationships that we have with our fathers or with our sons, with our children, are just small but meaningful pictures of what the ultimate reality is between God the Father and God the Son. And obviously we understand that that relationship is unique and that this picture doesn't carry over in every way, right? It's not a perfect analogy. There are no perfect analogies, but it's not a perfect analogy in that we can take every single relationship that we have with our father or our child and carry that over to the Godhead, right? Because, for example... You came into existence by your parents, right? Christ never came into existence. You understand that? That He always existed. The triune God has existed eternally. That it was always God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that sort of that part of the analogy doesn't work, and that's why we have to understand it uh, just to where the Scriptures want us to understand it. So this is the ultimate reality. That that um, that God is the Father and He has a Son um, who eternally existed uh, with Him. But for all the differences, there are lots of things that remain true in the analogy. Okay, that is, we as the analogy, we the picture. There are many things that that carry over. Um, So look at Matthew 3, verse 17. This is at the baptism of Jesus. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, this is obviously God the Father speaking, since the Spirit is descending on Him like a dove. Verse 17, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And then turn over to chapter 17, verse 5. God does the same thing in at the transfiguration when Jesus is revealing um, some of His glory to His disciples. Chapter 17, verse 5. Would someone read that for us? Okay, these same, uh, I actually put down the Mark references for you, but the same thing is happening in both of those uh, verses. That is, at, at Jesus' baptism, God is saying, this is my beloved Son. And so, um, so we learn from that is that there is a relationship between God the Father and God the Son. In Luke 2.49 there, um, Jesus refers to His Father's house. Okay, His Father's house. Then turn to John chapter 5. We've got several verses we need to look at here. John 5. Let someone read verses 17 to 20. Alright, so Jesus to His disciples is explaining His relationship to the Father in a way that we can understand because we have fathers, right? And that's the point is, okay, God doesn't exist as a triune God with a Son in order to show us, I mean, the ultimate reason He exists in that way is not to show us how we ought to be to our fathers or our sons, although we can learn from that. That's not the main reason though. It's the other way around. We actually exist to show ourselves and other people what it means for God the Father to relate to His Son and for God the Son to relate to His Father. That's part of the picture of parenting. That's part of why we exist as families. Turn to chapter 14 now. John chapter 14. Verse 11, Jesus wanted His disciples to understand this relationship, to recognize this relationship between Himself and God the Father. So so would someone read verse 11? Alright, so Jesus wanted them to understand this relationship. And then we already saw John 5.18. The Jewish leaders were shocked that Jesus would call His own... He would call God His own Father. And the reason for this is because if a person called uh, God His Father, 
in, in a unique way like Jesus was doing, they were basically equating themselves with God. And the reason for that, we don't quite understand that in our culture, but in their culture, a son took on the characteristics of his father. You know, So if a father was a carpenter, his son took on the characteristics of his father. He took on the, the attributes, the, the lifestyle, the same job, and so on. And you know, uh, you remember James and John are called the sons of what? There's two answers to that question, sons of Zebedee or the sons of Thunder. It's not that Thunder was Zebedee's you know, um, nickname, but it was that they took on the characteristics of Thunder. They, they took on the characteristics of kind of liveliness and so on. And, um, and so that's what it means to be a son. It's actually being equal with Thunder. That's the idea. So when Jesus called himself in John chapter 5, I am the Son of God. He was saying, I am equal with God, and they would understand it in that way. Now turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. And we see this relationship again. Can someone read that for us? John, uh, Acts 9, 20. Okay, of all the ways that Paul could describe Jesus, remember all the names that are given to Jesus, even from the Old Testament prophets all the way through the New Testament, there's lots of things that he could be called, but here Paul calls him the Son of God. Just as a further um, evidence of that idea of sonship, meaning equality, think back to what Jesus' favorite name for himself was. Does anyone remember what that was? Especially in the Gospel of Mark it comes out. Son of Man. What does that mean? Okay, that I'm not just God. I'm both God and man. I am man. I take on the characteristics of man. I am equal with man. Now, not equal with fallen man. Remember, it's not um, to err is not human. You recognize that? To err is sinful human. Okay, that's only been something because of the fall. That was actually a part of the curse. So, just because Jesus is human doesn't mean he has to be sinful. I hope you recognize that. So he was fully human. Um, there, it wasn't like he was mostly human, but he didn't have the ability to go over the edge and actually sin, so he wasn't really human. No, he was actually human. He had human blood. He didn't have divine blood. He had human blood. All right, so um, the Jewish leaders were... Uh, uh, shocked by this, Paul set, calls him the Son of God of all the things that he could. And then in Galatians 1, we're not going to look at all these texts, but um, he describes himself as an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Or many times, it's the, you know, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we have this relationship that pops up, and we probably don't think about it very much, but if you were to look up all the texts on God being called the Father... And, and Christ being called the Son, um, I'm sure you, you could probably have in the hundreds, if not thousands of texts that would um, support that, that relationship there. And so, it's hard for us to even think about the Trinity without thinking about God as Father and Christ as Son. It's hard to describe them in different ways. Sure, there's other names that we could give for Christ. Can you think of any other names? Like John 1.1 1, 1 calls Him the what? In the beginning was the Word, right? In Colossians 1, He's called the image 
of the Father. But, but even in those ideas that he, even when he's called the Word in John 1, he's called the Word of the Father. And when he's called the image in Colossians 1, he's called the image of the Father. And so even when we have other names for him, they often come in reference to him as the Son. And, um, and as the Father, uh, and as God as the Father. But here's, here's why this relationship of God as Father and Christ as Son is so fundamental to their relationship. Think about when Jesus told His disciples and us to baptize people. He didn't say, baptize them in the name of the, you know, the head and the body and the Holy Spirit, or the head and the Word and the Holy Spirit. What did He say? The Father and the Son. And so the, the fundamental names that we give to the triune God, the, the three members of the Trinity, are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what we learn from that is that everything that, that, that uh, our, our um, relationships show is that, that we are only a picture of this fundamental relationship between God and, and Christ. That, that, that we are really a witness to this relationship between God and His Son. And that this is stamped on our families. And that even in fallen families, they in some way, even though in a marred way, they reflect this relationship between God, God the Father and God the Son. Um, so we have several implications for our church and our family, and that's how we'll conclude today. All right, let's look at these implications, what it means to project His image in part through this parent-child relationship. Okay, number one, it keeps us from viewing our children as obstacles. It keeps us from viewing our children as obstacles. Some of us, as I mentioned, may be tempted to think that, you know, having children is not that important and can be, be a wall or a barrier to our even godly ambition and Christian service. I can do more for God if I didn't have children. I have more money for God. I have more time. Okay? But if parent-children, parent-child relationships are commanded and they bear witness to God's very nature, then, then that's a false way to look at children. They're not obstacles to ministry. They're not obstacles to, um, to Christian service and to uh, uh, Christian ambition even. Obviously, the, the sinful way, I mean, the, the ungodly way, the, the godless way of looking at it is to say that they're actually obstacles to my pursuit of money or pursuit of career and all that sort of thing. That's completely wrong. But, the, but you know, we can, we can kind of Christianize it, if I can use that term, and say, you know, children actually can become an obstacle to my ministry, to my serving of God. And that, that actually is unbiblical as well. We can draw that out from an implication that God has commanded us to to bear children if God has, has enabled us to do so and um, and to uh, picture that that relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Number two keeps us from viewing children as idols. Okay, because others are tempted to worship their children, um, you know, put them on pedestals. And we need to be reminded that God did not give families, children, as something to be worshipped, but 
so that we can worship Him. They actually are used as a means by which we can worship Him. We see all the great features that God has put into our children. We see the way that God provides for them. We see that, you know, the the hopefully the spiritual transformation that God's done within them, and as a result, we can give greater praise to God, greater praise to God than we would have without them. And so we should build up our homes, but only as a means to building up the family of God or building our relationship with God, not ultimately to to serve our children as, as the primary idol or something, as the primary object of worship. Obviously, God only can take that place. Number three, keeps us from viewing children as tools. Um, others argue that children and family are important because they're just building blocks to society or to church. And um, they mean this in a good way. And it is true that families do, in a sense, keep the world and the society running in a proper function. You, you recognize how much it destroys a society when families are are um, are, are dis in disharmony and so on. Um, you know, there's whole neighborhoods of people who have broken families and so on. We used to live in a neighborhood like that. We'd go out on visitation and, and not. it was very rare to find a child with the same last name as their parent because they would have so many different, you know, parents, step-parents, all these things, and then they're, they're kind of being bounced off. And, and it kind of, it, it changes the way that that society operates, doesn't it? Um, so you recognize that children are helpful or, or maintaining that family structure is helpful for society, but that's not the whole story. Families are more than social glue. They actually bear the, the, the image of the triune God. They show us what it is like for God to, to, to exist with His Son, Christ. And then fourthly, it keeps us from overlooking children. This kind of um, this this could uh, fall under the obstacle one as well. If we don't understand the purpose of children, we could possibly just overlook them. And um, and if we're single, we could just you know that's somebody else's responsibility. They're unimportant to the life of the church, the life of us as Christians. And if we're parents, we may just see you know they're just really. Um, just another way for us to reach out in evangelism. So here's another way for us to get somebody to come to Christ. Instead, we should recognize that they are they are really made in the image of God. They're important creatures just as we are in God's sight, and we ought to treat them that way. Why is it so easy to develop such a distorted view of children or to overlook them? Um I think it's because we simply fail to view children and families as they are designed, as they were designed in a proper biblical light with, we could say, the proper biblical framework or the proper worldview of children. It's easy to use them for the means that we want to use them. Sometimes we use children as a means to make ourselves look better, right? Like if we can get them all buttoned up and kind of looking really nice, then that will actually speak to my ability to lead as a as a parent and so on so we can use them for for the wrong purposes and when we understand why families are designed why families are made you know just like the marriage relationship 
The relationship between husband and wife, that's not the ultimate reality, is it? What is it? What is the ultimate reality? Christ and His church. So that we can understand the relationship that there is between Christ and His church, God designed a husband and a wife to exist. Okay, The same thing is true with families. We exist for God's purposes to reveal in a way to ourselves and the people around us what it means to to um, to have a relationship to for God to have a relationship with His Son Christ, but it's also more than that, which is what we'll get into next week. That it is, uh, it shows us a picture of what the gospel is like, and what the church ought to be. All right, maybe not exactly where you thought we were going this morning, but um, again, you know, in all these classes, what you're going to see is that there's going to be some foundational material that we need, to, we need to go back to, and then we'll start drawing out implications for what this looks like in our home and, and uh, how we treat our children, how we treat other people's children, and so on. Any questions or comments? Vicki. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like, you know, we're just doing it because everybody else does it. Or, you know, I can see some, I can see some other advantages to this, some... So on, yeah, it's good, good to kind of see what what God is doing here with the family. All right, let's pray. Thank you for your attention. We'll uh, be dismissed. We'll pick up on this next week. Lord, we uh, are grateful for uh, the relationship that exists within the Godhead. Thankful for Christ, and uh, we're thankful for how we can see even today that that our relationship with our parents, our relationship with our children help reflect what it's like for Christ to exist with you and for you to exist with Christ and and how you uh, seek out His needs and how there's an authority structure there, how there's function within the Godhead and uh, helps us to understand the Godhead a little bit more. It's, it's very complex to understand that doctrine laid out in Scripture, but we're thankful for the picture of the family that helps us to do that. May we not treat our children in a wrong way, both our own children that you've entrusted to us and also the children within this church that you've entrusted to the care of our church. We pray that you would help us to, to love them and to see them as, as a gift from you and as a means to accomplish your purposes through us and, and, and in their lives. We would love to see more and more people praise you because of your grace, but but we'd also love to increase in our understanding of you so that we can grow in our praise for you. Help us uh, in this hour to follow as we, re- we reflect on our salvation and on what it provides for us within the church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.